Hi, I'm Savannah, the contract tutor, and welcome back to Basic Contract Law for Students. Last episode, we discussed the first component of a contract, which is the offer. This episode, we're talking about acceptance, the second component of a contract. Acceptance must occur while the offer is still in effect, so before it has lapsed or been revoked. An offer is deemed to remain open for a reasonable time, depending on the circumstances. If the offeree quote-unquote accepts after the offer has lapsed, then it's a counter-offer. The offerer may terminate the offer any time before the offeree has accepted and before it's lapsed, unless it's one of the irrevocable things that we talked about last episode, such as an option contract. The revocation becomes effective when it is communicated to the offeree in two ways. Either direct revocation, so the offerer tells the offeree, hey, I'm revoking my offer, or indirect revocation, which we spoke about last time as well, where the offeree hears about that termination from a reliable source. So let's talk about silence or inaction as acceptance. This can be under the common law or the UCC. The restatement says that the offeree can ignore the offer and will not be committed to a contract by not responding. So that's our general rule. There are two exceptions. So silence or inaction can operate as acceptance where the parties have a relationship where it's reasonable for the offeree to notify the offerer of intent not to accept. For example, a company and employees constantly communicate by email. The plaintiff received the notice of the terms changing via email and was told eight times that he could decline until October 2nd, and he didn't decline at all. That's a case that I read last year, Gupta v. Morgan Stanley. Another example, a restaurant sends back the groceries they don't need every Monday. This week, they haven't returned them to the grocery store by Tuesday. So now they have accepted to purchase the whole shipment because their time that they usually would send their goods back by has passed. The restatement says you may also signify assent if the offeree takes advantage of services offered with the reasonable opportunity to reject them and reason to know that they were offered with the expectation of compensation. So for example, an offerer makes the offeree aware of terms and prices, and then the offeree receives service and refuses to pay. So like a contractor has a contract to deepen a well in an area, but mistakenly enters onto the wrong property and proceeds to deepen the well there. The owner of the property sees the contractor at work, but says nothing. When the contractor completes the job, the property owner refuses to pay the bill, and the contractor files suit. In her answer, the property owner stated that she thought the contractor was employed by the county and that the government was paying for the work. She knew, however, that two of her neighbors had recently paid private contractors to deepen their wells. So here, there is an implied-in-fact contract, which means a real contract. Because the woman did not say anything when she had reason to know that she would have to pay for the services. There are two types of contracts that I see frequently. There's bilateral contracts and unilateral contracts. Both of these are under common law. 
So a bilateral contract means that acceptance is either by a promise to perform or beginning that invited performance. So this is your typical, here's my offer. Okay, cool. Yes, I accept your offer. That's your typical promise to perform whatever. Most contracts are bilateral because the offerer is not concerned with the method of acceptance. They don't really care. Now, unilateral contracts under common law is an acceptance by complete performance only. So performance by the offeree is both the acceptance of the offer and the consideration furnished by the offeree. This is also a contract we talked about last episode that it's irrevocable for a reasonable amount of time once they start to allow them to finish. However, performance under a unilateral contract does not equal preparation to perform. Those are not the same thing. Note that advertisements, which invite the doing of an act, the offerer or the relevant context makes it clear that the offer can be accepted only by the doing of an act. So for example, an advertisement says that a valedictorian that comes to the store will get a 50% discount on luggage. So the advertisement specifically states that the valedictorians must come to the store to get that 50% off. So they can't sit at home and order online. Also note that a deposit does not count as a full performance of a unilateral contract because it's not full payment. So that's probably going to be under a bilateral contract. So acceptance must be communicated to the offerer and takes effect only when that communication is legally completed. Another huge thing you're going to be tested on is the mailbox rule. So the mailbox rule is meant to protect the offeree. Once an offeree has dispatched or sent his acceptance, it's too late for the offerer to revoke. So two things have to happen. It has to either be an express or implied way of acceptance, so if the offerer is extending the offer by mail, then we also know that mail is going to be a reasonable means of acceptance. And second, it needs to be stamped and properly dispatched. So if you're writing the incorrect address on it, then it's not going to count. The mailbox rule does not apply to revocations, only acceptances. That's extremely important. If a revocation was sent by an offerer before the offeree, sent an acceptance, the revocation must reach the offeree before they send their acceptance. Otherwise, it doesn't count. Revocation is only effective when communicated to the offeree before acceptance. And this makes sense because the mailbox rule is meant to protect the offeree, right? So if the offerer is revoking their offer, that doesn't matter because it's not going to protect their revocation because they're the offerer and it only protects the offeree. So the mailbox rule also applies to electronics. It's basically the same thing. It needs to be some sort of substantially instantaneous two-way communication where the principles are the same, where the parties are in the presence of each other. What happens when the offeree sends a rejection before an acceptance? Because it's meant to protect the offeree in their acceptance capacity, right? 
So what happens is the offeree is not keeping the protection of the mailbox rule. So they're losing it. If they send a rejection, they lose that mailbox rule protection. But if the offeree decides to accept the offer after they've already sent a revocation, then whichever one gets there first, whether it's the revocation or the acceptance, that's going to govern. So if you offer to sell me 12 bushels of oranges and you mail it to me and then I write back and I say, yeah, I'm not interested. And then later that day, I'm like, you know, I actually really could use 12 bushels of oranges. So I immediately write back and I say, actually, upon reconsideration, I would like to accept your offer of 12 bushels of oranges. So I send that first class mail in hopes that that one is going to get to you sooner. So note that it's whichever one, my rejection or my acceptance, whichever one gets there first, not whichever one is opened and read first. So that's really important. An offerer can effectively negate the mailbox rule simply by stating that acceptance needs to be received to be effective rather than dispatched, right? Rather than sent. And this is because we mentioned last episode that the offerer stipulates the terms of acceptance. They are the master of the offer. So if whatever they say goes, and also recall that the mailbox rule does not apply to option contracts or merchant firm offers. So let's move into common law acceptances versus UCC acceptances. These two bodies of law, this is called the battle of the forms. So under common law, the mirror image rule or the ribbon matching rule requires exact correspondence between the offer and acceptance. Basically, for acceptance to be effective, it has to mirror the terms of the offer. So there can't be any additions. If there are different or additional terms, then that's a counter offer. And the offeree's power of acceptance for the original offer terminates, right? We spoke about that last episode. So for example, if I offer to sell you my bike for $50, you're going to say, I accept your offer to sell me your bike for $50. You're not going to say $12 because that goes into the procedural and substantive terms of an offer, and now you're making a counter offer. Common law also has something called the last shot rule. This usually is when parties do not agree on the terms of their common law or services contract, but they perform anyway. So like their standard agreements are different. So the terms of the last document whether that's a counter offer or an offer, is what's going to govern or constitute the terms of the contract. So whoever sent something last, that's what governs. And the logic behind that is that, well, because this counter offer was sent, and it's a counter offer because it's different than what was sent first, whoever sent something first, right? So because this counter offer was sent and the other party still performed, that means they must be accepting the counter offer, right? So for example, a cleaning company and a law firm. The cleaning company sends the law firm its standard agreement contract, which says that the cleaning company is not liable for anything that goes missing while its workers are cleaning the firm. 
the law firm also sends its standard agreement contract saying the total opposite, that the cleaning company is liable for things that go missing while the cleaning company employees are there. Often, neither party reads the other party's contract because they're all standard terms, right? But the cleaning company still shows up and cleans. So which contract terms govern? Well, who sent the last document? In this example, it was a law firm. So because the cleaning company still performed after the law firm sent its standard contract over, then the terms of that contract will govern and the cleaning company will be liable for things that go missing while its workers are cleaning. Now, under UCC acceptance, we have something called UCC 2-207. And because of this, UCC rejects the last shot and mirror image rules. So if you're going to use the last shot or mirror image rule, make sure that the question is a common law question. So a services question or something that is not governing goods. So under 2-207, there are three paragraphs that are very important. So the first paragraph is governing formation. It says, a definite, seasonable, and unconditional acceptance does not constitute a counteroffer or rejection, even if it states different or additional terms. So they're saying, as long as it's seasonable, definite, unconditional, that's okay if it has different terms or additional terms. That's totally fine. That's why it rejects the mirror image rule. So definite terms means that it agrees with the key terms of the offer. And seasonable means like within a reasonable time. Now, are the additional terms part of the contract created by the exchange of documents? Now, under UCC 2-207, paragraph 2, this is going to talk about merchants, and it governs terms. Now, if one party is a merchant, or neither are merchants, then the additional terms are mere proposals. So the terms of the offer will govern unless the recipient specifically assents to additional terms. Now, an exception is if the terms that differ are the contingency that the party will actually enter into the contract. It's the only reason they're here. So for example, I try to order a purple shirt, but you're only offering blue. Well, the only reason I wanted the shirt was because it's purple. So you're not going to be able to provide that for me. And I don't want to accept that. So that counter offer of the blue is not going to be part of the contract. Now between merchants, the additional terms automatically become part of the contract unless exception. So there's three. First is the offer limits acceptance to the terms stated in the offer. Second, the additional terms materially alter the contract. Now material means it's serious, important. It's down to the bare bones of the contract. It's really important. So something that's going to materially alter the contract is surprise and hardship. So suggesting a term would qualify as material if it is not reasonably expected. So it's not adequately brought to the attention of one of the parties and departs from standard practice. So for example, adding in a warranty clause, a forum selection clause, or an arbitration clause. Third is 
The offerer has already objected to these within a reasonable time. So, for example, they say, hey, we actually read your contract and we don't like that term, so just kidding. So the way I remember this, these three exceptions is LAMO, L-A-M-O. First, limits acceptance, that's L-A. Second, the additional terms materially alter, that's M. And third, the offer has already objected, that's O, is object. Now the third paragraph of 2207 is a contract by conduct. This happens where the writings of the parties didn't form a contract, but then they performed anyway. So their conduct is saying that they have a contract, not the writings of the party. So in this case, the terms of the contract are those on which the writings of the parties agree, with the unagreed upon terms being, quote unquote, knocked out or dropped. And the gaps are filled in with the law of the UCC. So this contract by conduct paragraph is often called the knockout rule. So for example, both parties put a forum selection clause into their terms, each one listing a different forum. One party brings suit. Now in one case, the Niagara Bottling versus Wright Height Co., the California court determined that since the parties did not agree on the forum selection, that term would be dropped. And since the UCC law didn't have anything to fill with this term, then the California court said it has jurisdiction over the suit. Now there's also something called shipment as acceptance under the UCC. And this is a different paragraph. This is UCC section 2-206, not 207. So shipment as acceptance counts if there is a promise to ship or actual shipment, whether that's of conforming or non-conforming goods. So what are conforming and non-conforming goods? Well, non-conforming goods means that they are goods that do not satisfy the expectations or are not goods specified in the contract. So they send you the wrong thing. So acceptance occurs either when the promise to ship is made or when the goods are actually shipped, whichever one happens first. So if an order is going to be an offer, then the acceptance of that offer is either the invoice saying, yep, we accept your offer, or the shipment or promise of shipment. So if a seller receives an order and plans on accepting the order by sending the goods, if the goods that are sent are non-conforming, then there is a breach. So the buyer may keep the goods and sue for damages or reject the items. So if the seller sends non-conforming goods but included a letter of accommodation, then it's a counteroffer, which the buyer may accept or reject. So the seller still has a chance to cure or fix the non-conforming goods if the buyer agrees to the counteroffer. So the letter of accommodation has to include, first, it needs to mention that the goods are non-conforming, so the seller can't meet the terms of the offer. And second, they need to offer something else as an accommodation to the buyer. So if there is no letter of accommodation, then it's a breach. If there is a letter of accommodation, then it's a counter offer. 
And this only happens when there is non-conforming goods involved. The logic behind this is that if the person didn't want to accept, then they should have just seasonably notified the offerer. So how do you know which body of the UCC to apply? Well, that's determined by what's going on in the question. Obviously, if nobody says anything and someone just ships something, then it's probably going to be 2-206 shipment as acceptance question. Now, a UCC 2-207 question could be testing a lot of things, and this is because it's easily testable and it covers a lot of areas. So which paragraph of UCC 2-207 is going to apply? Well, we have to remember that the first paragraph governs formation, the second governs terms, and the third one governs contract by conduct. So you need to ask yourself in a question, is this a formation question or a terms question? Or is there something in here to show me that their conduct is what created a contract? All right, quick run through of everything we've gone over this episode. We went over some general rules of acceptance, silence or inaction as acceptance, bilateral and unilateral contracts, the mailbox rule, common law acceptances, UCC acceptances. Now, common law acceptances include the mirror image and last shot rule, and UCC acceptances include 2-207, which governs formation, terms, and contract by conduct. And we also talked about UCC shipment as acceptance, which is under 2-206. I'm the Contract Tutor, and thank you for listening to Basic Contract Law for Students.